All right. So uh, I didn't share this in the first service, but I'm going to share it now. Uh, when I first became a youth pastor, uh, one thing I did is I, I did my best to ask around and to seek out and find out um, who, who are people really across the country who are doing well in youth ministry, who, who are the people who have built the best systems, who are the people who seem to um, have it to a, to a point where it's, it's healthy and sustainable. And um, I, I, heard, I heard the name Dustin Woodward almost right away, and I went online and I listened to every podcast I could find. I watched every YouTube video I can find, and, and, and I, I learned something that somebody can mentor you when they don't even know you. And, and it was a valuable lesson for me. And I, I can, without him knowing, I can credit so much of what goes on in our youth ministry just to, to, for, uh, to him. for so, so thank you so much for the content that you put out, for the leadership that, that you do, and for the things that you do across the country that affect people that you'll never know in little towns like Yuma, Arizona, man. So thank you so much. But uh, we, we are so honored to have him. So I'm going to ask if you, you will please stand to your feet and honor uh, the man of God as we welcome uh, Pastor Dustin Woodward from Copper Point Church in Albuquerque, New Mexico. How's everybody doing today? Good. You guys can go ahead and be seated. Today is going to be a great, great day. I, I just want to say right before I, I get started, um, I don't know if you're new to this church or maybe you've been coming a long time. Um, I just want to encourage you and tell you, I go, I've been to a lot of churches. My dad is our senior pastor. I've met a lot of pastors in my life, been to a lot of churches in a lot of cities. And I just want to say, you have something special here. Your leaders, Pastor Tyrone and Virginia, guys, there is something special about them. Uh, they have integrity, they have passion. And I just want to say, don't ever take it for granted. Don't ever normalize this because this is something special. And I believe that God is, is already doing amazing things and will continue to do so. Uh, yeah, give them another huge hand. And then also, uh, Pastor Tyrone and Karina, you guys, um, I, I've known you ish, but this trip, I've really gotten to know you and I can't wait for me and my wife to hang out with you guys more and really truly become great friends, incredible people, incredible youth pastors. I, I, uh, when I was at Outpour all weekend and I assumed, I just, I didn't know like the story, how long you'd been in ministry. I was short. I had assumed that they had been youth pastors for 10 or 12 years and had been doing this and built this conference. And I was like, wait, this is your, wait, is it the third? This was the third one, the third Outpour ever. When they told me that at dinner, my mouth just like fell open. I was like, how have you built something this strong, this healthy, so quickly. Um, there's a special anointing on their lives and their ministry and leadership. You guys are lucky to have them. So yeah, give them a huge hand. My brother, Jonathan is with me today. John, stand up real quick. Wave at everybody. He is a, yeah, he's a doctor of pharmacy. So I tell people he's my legal drug dealer. So yeah, it's a uh, legal, not illegal. Uh, so yeah, thanks John for coming. And I, can I show you a picture of my family real quick? I, I miss them. And I just want to show you a picture of them. This is my wife, Mandy. Uh, we have four kids. Avery is our oldest. She is 15. Aiden over here is 13. Asher is nine and Aslan is five. They are a handful. I just want to say this about my wife. She's my hero. She is a full-time pastor at our church. She is our creative director, worship pastor, which means she oversees every service we do. The conferences, the weekend services, full-time. She's also a full-time mom of four. They're all in extracurricular activities year-round. They go to four different schools. I think my wife needs a big round of applause, right? She's pretty amazing. Mandy. 
So yeah, we have a pretty cool story. I'm not able to go into all of it today, but um, God is good and I have a great family. So I'm excited to be here today though. And I'm gonna jump right into this message. And I'll, I'll, just, I'll just ask this. How many of you guys ever, do you guys ever go fishing? You guys like fishing? I know you're in the desert, kind of like Albuquerque. It's like fishing, where? You know, there's like a river, you know, that's it, right? So same thing in Albuquerque. We have the Rio Grande and it's turned into a stream. It's not even a river. So I don't go fishing very often, but when I do, I like it. But I also, we, we go to every year on vacation, our family to Gulf Shores, Alabama. Has anybody ever been down there? Kind of the Pensacola area? Yeah, all right, one guy, me and you. All right, so we go down there every year. My parents, uh, or my grandparents built a house down there and our family kind of, we get to, how... I love vacations where you get to stay for free. I'll just say it like that. Like my grandparents built this house like in the seventies and we get to go down there every year and stay for free. And it's like, thank you, God, you know? So we go down there, we fish, but I've also, I mean, since I was a kid, I also have this other hobby when I go down. Um, I like catching crabs. Has anybody ever done that? I know it's random. I like catching crabs. Mainly, I mean, they're, they're, we use this crab trap and he's, they're going to throw a picture up. It's not like this epic, like we're going out on boats like you see on Discovery Channel. No, no. I just go out to this little canal. I put bait in a crab trap. There's a rope attached to it. I throw it out. It sinks to the bottom and I tie it off. But here's what I do. In the middle of that cylinder, I put a bunch of raw chicken in the middle of that cylinder. When you throw raw chicken out into a canal where there's crabs, guys, they just come running. Because I like crabbing because of one reason, because, because crabs are so dumb. That's why. Because crabs, this is what's so crazy. Crabs, they're, they're, they're the best possible meal that a crab could ever come up with would be raw chicken, a bunch of it dropping down into the water right in front of them, it would, they would just be singing praises in that moment, right? How many of you guys have like an absolute favorite meal? My absolute favorite meal, and I'm gonna make you hungry if you haven't eaten lunch. I haven't either, so our pain is the same. I, my favorite meal would be a giant steak. It's hot, it's sizzling. There's butter melting on top of it. You can kind of see the seasoning. I mean, you cut into it. There's some pink, but not too much. You know, I mean, it's just beautiful. Then a lobster tail on the side. There's hot butter that you can dip the lobster in. There's garlic bread on the side. Can I get an amen? I'm just saying, okay. Vegetarians, I just killed you, but meat lovers, we are good, right? I'll give an opportunity for the vegetarians to receive Christ later, but um, it's a... Uh, just kidding. Vegetarian and vegetarians and cat lovers. And you know, I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. I'm joking. So I'm going somewhere with this. Keep me on track guys. So crab chicken drops in on this trap. This is what's so nuts. When you see, if you were a crab and you see the best meal you could ever come up with drop right in front of you and you're just minding your business. And then there was this giant cage like thing around it. Wouldn't you think a crab would stop and say, Hmm, I don't know if I should enter into this trap or into this thing because I've never seen it before. You think there might be some kind of alarm in the crab's little bitty brain that might say this is abnormal. No, it's like the scent of the chicken, the sight of the chicken becomes so insatiable. It's like the trap, this odd thing begins to disappear and they will do whatever it takes to get inside this thing just to taste the chicken. They eat it and then they turn around and they can't get out. Today, I wanna talk about temptation because it is the exact same thing in our lives. Something drops right in front of us. We want it. We have a hunger for it. We have an appetite, an appetite for it. We want this thing. 
And it's like all of the safeguards, the things that should be obvious that Satan is using something. All the people around us are saying, you should not date that person. Don't do it. You shouldn't go there. Don't take that job. Don't move your family. There's so many obvious things. But when you're the one in the middle of it, the trap begins to disappear because your appetite for what's in front of you is so big. And then all of a sudden we take it, we turn around and we find ourselves involved in something that we can't get out of. And that's what Satan wants to do every single day in our lives. Proverbs 14, 27 says exactly that. It says the fear of the Lord is a life giving fountain that keeps you safe from deadly traps. The fear of the Lord is a life-giving fountain that keeps you safe from deadly traps. What is the fear of the Lord? The fear of the Lord is not being afraid of the Lord. It's not being afraid of God. It's not like, oh, God's going to, you know, smite me. That's not the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is respect. It's reverence. It's worship. It, It is this deep sense of being in awe of who God is. So what this verse is saying from Proverbs is that when you are in awe of who God is, When you revere him, respect him, when you love him, you are walking with him. When you're walking with God, you are, I mean, just obviously avoiding deadly traps. So Proverbs says to avoid the trap, you walk with God and you use his wisdom. I think it's really important for us too, before I jump into a couple points, to really think about this. Anytime you look out into the world or in a church like this, and you see the kingdom of God advancing, When you see that many teenagers this weekend encountering God, they're experiencing God, they're being challenged and and the word of God is being spoken over them. You see what this church is doing for the sake of church unity in a city. Guys, church unity is not common in other cities. The fact that there were so many churches represented here this weekend, people are actually friends from other churches. The pastors are praying for each other. It shouldn't be odd, but it is. And you guys have something special here. The kingdom of God is advancing, but we can't be naive because every time we see the kingdom of God advancing with love and grace and unity and power, we can't forget that there is another kingdom, a kingdom of darkness and evil that wants to resist at the same level the kingdom of God is advancing. But if we get naive and we even look at a weekend like this, if you're a parent or a teenager, like an outpour, we look at this weekend and we say, it's amazing. And we only use our lens in the sight of of the kingdom of God, we're being naive because Satan is not giving up just because someone's advancing. He gears up and wants to resist at the level of their advancement. It's not to scare us. It's not so we need to live lives being afraid. We need to live lives being aware of the traps that he's trying to set. Because a trap is coming when you are advancing. And we have to see it, not be blind to it, be open to what people are telling us and and how they're guiding us and how God's guiding us. And we keep moving forward. There is a kingdom of darkness and a kingdom of evil though. What's sad is a lot of people in our culture I read a statistic the other day, nationalgeographic.com says that 92% of the human beings on earth today believe in God or a God or a higher power, 92%. But only 17% actually believe there is any kind of real evil being in the world. So what we're saying is it's not logical that there would be an evil being. That's what people are saying. Like, hold on. How is it not logical that there would be an evil being 
but it seems very logical that there would be a good, loving God type being, right? We can't go there because if there is a God and he's good, then it's absolutely logical that there would be an evil that's bad, right? Are you guys with me? So we have to, we can't be in the 17%. We've got to read the word of God at face value and understand that there is an evil in the world. It's not ambiguous. It's not nameless. It's not obscure. It is specific. And this evil has a name. I want you to follow me on this. If we think that all that was behind the Holocaust was Hitler, we're deceived. If we think all that was behind slavery was greed and sadistic slave owners, we're deceived. If we think all that was, is behind sex trafficking is perverted, money-hungry people, we're deceived. If we think all that's behind drug addiction is a person who made bad decisions, we're deceived. And if we think all that's behind depression and suicide is someone who's sad or someone who has a chemical imbalance only, we're deceived. Now, I want to be careful and I want to explain. What I'm not saying is that Hitler shouldn't be responsible for his actions. He should have been. Because as humans, although we're tempted, that's not an excuse just to sin. We still make our own choices. Hitler allowed evil behind him to actually take over who he was, and he innately became evil. But Satan was pushing everything in the Holocaust, and Hitler gave in to temptation. It's the same thing with slavery. Satan hates people and people were open to evil. Therefore they became evil and did evil things. They need to be held responsible for their actions, right? And what I'm also saying about depression and suicide, the thoughts of suicide, what's happening is there are very real chemical imbalances. Yes, but it's not only chemical imbalances. What Satan wants us to believe is that it's only a physical problem. Is it a physical problem? It can be but it's also a massive spiritual problem because Satan is capitalizing on everything he can to destroy people. The Bible says that he's a thief and he comes to steal, kill, and destroy. We have to be aware. We don't just live in a physical world. There isn't just an obscure, an obscure evil. It's very specific. His name is Satan. The Bible calls him the devil and his name appears 37 times in the New Testament. Jesus calls him by name 11 times. Jesus. He doesn't say, oh, just evil out there or darkness. He calls him by name. It's very important that we understand that our lives are meant to live on a path that God has for us, his will, his destiny, his purpose for our lives. And Satan's goal is to take us off that path. Proverbs 4, 23 through 27. It's gonna come up on the screen, says this. So above all, guard the affections of your heart for they affect all that you are. Pay attention to the welfare of your innermost being for from there flows the wellspring of life. Avoid dishonest speech and pretentious words. Be free from using perverse words no matter what. Now this is the important part right here. Watch where you're going. Set your gaze on the path before you. With fixed purpose, look straight ahead. Ignore life's distractions. Watch where you're going. Stick to the path of truth and the road will be safe and smooth before you. Don't allow yourself to be sidetracked for even a moment or take the detour that leads to darkness. I love this because it says with fixed purpose. With fixed purpose, look straight ahead. Don't look to the right. Don't look to the left. How many of you guys, when you're driving down the highway, if there's a wreck on the side of the road, how many of you guys are just looking at the wreck and you get sidetracked? You have to see what's going on. Anybody? 
It's okay. Like last service, like nobody raised their hands. And I'm like, come on. All right, let's, let's try that again. How many of you guys love looking at the wreck on the side of the road? I know. Okay. I know it's church, but if you didn't raise your hand, it's okay. We all know the truth. So you're driving down the road and you're looking. Very normal people, even godly people will drive down the road and they see a wreck. And like, there's something in us that even wants to see like, are there bodies? Are there bodies? I think I see a body. We're like, wait, what am I doing right now? I'm so weird, right? We are fascinated by things on the side of the road. But if we look long enough, we're going to end up in our own wreck. And Satan does the same thing. You have a destination that you're going to, and he's trying to sidetrack you with things on the side of the road. And if we look long enough, we're going to end up in our own wreck. We're going to find ourselves in situations and places we never wanted to be. So today I want to go through two main tactics that Satan uses when it comes to, when he comes to temptation, when he comes to tempting us, he uses two main tactics. Number one is this, Satan leverages our biology. Everybody say biology. A lot of you guys haven't said that word since high school and it just brings back anxiety, right? Like Satan leverages our biology. What, what do I mean by that? If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew chapter four. It's kind of where I'll be-ish the, the rest of the time. Matthew chapter four, what's going on? This is the temptation of Jesus. But it's important to note that in Matthew three, there's a very famous important story where Jesus himself gets baptized. So John the Baptist is, is baptizing people and, and he sees Jesus coming over the hill with his followers and he points at Jesus and says, behold the lamb of God, okay? Behold the lamb of God. Everybody around knew what that meant. John the Baptist was pointing at Jesus saying, that is the Messiah. They have a conversation and then John begins to baptize Jesus and when he baptizes him, he comes out of the water. This is one of those few instances in scripture where we see the fullness of the Trinity the fullness of the Trinity, God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit interacting with, with each other at one time. You have the Son who's being baptized. You have the Holy Spirit descending out of heaven in the form of a dove, landing on Jesus, symbolizing the anointing and power of the Holy Spirit. Then it says the sky opens up and the voice of God the Father says, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. I don't know about you, but I would consider that if I was Jesus, a spiritual high point in my life. I just got baptized. The sky opens up. The dove comes down. God says, this is the son I love. He is the son of God. You would come out of the water. And it's like that scene in the movie where it's like, ta-da, you know, that kind of moment. Like we all like, ah, oh, I want to be that guy. You know, that kind of thing. I don't know about you, but um, I think back to my past in my life, there have definitely been some spiritual high points in my life those moments where you're attending a conference or a church service, or maybe it's just praying in your room or in your car when you're just warring after something in the spirit and you have that encounter with God and you're thinking, I don't want to go back. I wanna stay here forever. But what we find is right after the baptism, the Bible says in Matthew four, in the very first verse, that the spirit that just descended on Jesus leads him into the wilderness to be tempted but to be tempted for the sake of overcoming the devil. That was the reason Jesus went in. He's at a spiritual high point on a mountaintop. And then he comes down into a valley, into a literal desert. But when I say that Satan leverages our biology, this is what I mean. I'll ask this. How many of you guys have ever been so hungry? It might be right now. So hungry. All you can think about is the next time you're going to eat, right? Hopefully I'm not, I'm talking about food a lot. Stay with me today, guys. Okay, so... Me too. 
I've had those moments where like, I am so hungry. That's all I could think about. Jesus in the desert, fasting for 40 days. I think sometimes we hear Bible stories a lot and we become numb to what it's actually saying. Guys, I can't go four hours, right? Like the longest I've ever fasted without food, like completely was just a few days. And I'm like laying on the living room and, you know, on the floor. And I'm like, Mandy, take me to the doctor. I'm dying. You know, that kind of thing. Jesus goes 40 days. He's hungry. Satan knows that he's weak. And it's just like Satan to approach us in our weakest points physically because he knows we are vulnerable spiritually. Satan doesn't tempt Jesus on the fourth day, the 10th day, the 14th day. He waits till the very last day that most doctors say is the longest any human being can even live without food, 40 days. And that's when Satan comes and tempts him And it's a really powerful passage. I'm going to read this, Matthew 4, 1 through 4. Afterward, after the baptism, the Holy Spirit led Jesus into the lonely wilderness in order to reveal his strength against the accuser by going through the ordeal of testing. After fasting for 40 days, Jesus was extremely weak and famished. Then the tempter came to entice him to provide food by doing a miracle. So he said to Jesus, how can you possibly be the son of God and go hungry? Just order these stones to be turned into loaves of bread. He answered, the scriptures say, this is Jesus, bread alone will not satisfy, but true life is found in every word which constantly goes forth from the mouth of God. It's so important for us to remember that Jesus was both fully God and fully man. I think sometimes when we look at stories of Jesus, we go, well, yeah, I mean, but he was God. No, yes, but hold on. (laughs) He was fully God, but it was so important. Jesus couldn't be the perfect sacrifice on the cross unless he was also fully man. He had to live the life you and I have to live to battle the same temptations, the same weakness, the emotions. He had to live as a human being and live perfectly or the sacrifice wouldn't be the ultimate sacrifice. It couldn't be a God dying because then it wouldn't be a sacrifice. He couldn't take our place. He had to live in our place in order to take our place on the cross. So he's in this wilderness in this temptation season and he's starving and he's physically, biologically withering away. And Satan leverages his biology, steps in, and that's when he begins to tempt. What do I mean by biology? I love psychology, psychiatry. I love the human anatomy. I love studying the brain. There is an area of the brain called the limbic system. Anybody familiar with it? Limbic system? The limbic system in the brain is the area of the brain that helps us process pain and pleasure. So when you experience pain, in your life, however your brain interprets pain, hunger, or some of these things Jesus was going through, whenever your brain interprets pain, it tells you by releasing chemicals, right, in your brain to jump to pleasure to counteract the pain. So your brain is yelling at you, we don't like the pain. Jump to something, so pleasure, jump to pleasure so you can suppress The pain, your body is programmed to fight pain and not to accept it. So when we are experiencing biological pain, your own brain begins to work against you. Satan knows that. And in your weakest moments physically, he begins to leverage your biology and add the spiritual weight 
to what you're already going through. That's why when you're going through something, a tragedy in your family or your life, you're going through pain, that's why it feels like all hell is breaking loose around it as well as just the problem. Because it is. And just like Jesus reaches this desperate point, we do too. And Satan comes in in those moments and puts the pressure on. So what do I mean by pain? I'm going to give you guys an acrostic. The acrostic, is the word is blast, okay? It's not because we're having a blast. It's just the only word that worked. So blast, all right? B-L-A-S-T, write that down. Go down with it in acrostic. So I'm going to tell you these five things are what defines pain in your brain, which we need to watch out for physically. This will help you. The B stands for bored, all right? When we're bored, Satan knows that your brain is interpreting that as pain. So when you're bored, I mean, think about it. I mean, even, even our two and three-year-olds, when they get bored, bored, what do they do? They come up to you like, mommy, daddy, I'm bored. I want to go do this, that, or this. Why? Because their brain is saying, we don't like this. Go whine to your parents that you're bored and tell them to go do something fun. We see it in little bitty kids. But adults do the same thing. When we're bored, when we have idle hands, right? That's when the enemy comes in and says, do something and resolve your boredom. Resolve your boredom. It's a big deal. That's why we can't allow scenarios where we are just sitting around with nothing to do because that is a vulnerable point where Satan will tempt. The L is for lonely. So when we're bored, when we're lonely. Loneliness, man, when you reach a lonely point, that is like the devil's playground. Your brain is saying, we don't like being lonely. Don't be lonely. Text the person you shouldn't be texting. Stay up late and write the message that you shouldn't be writing. Do something and go get that substance. Go get the drink. Go do something to counteract the loneliness. And then Satan starts to also get in your head and say you're lonely because the people at church don't like you. You even go in there and you feel like an outcast. Then you go home and you sit there all day long while there's small groups going on at other houses and there's events happening here that you could be serving in and you're saying, I'm lonely, I'm lonely. Now it's the pastor's fault, the church's fault and Satan has you right where he wants you. Sitting at home, blaming other people because you're sitting at home. Lonely, lonely. We have to stand up and say, I'm going to be around people. I'm going to fight this. I said this to the last service. Um, How many of you guys don't really love not being invited to things? Kind of hurts, right? All humans. I resolve that in my life. I'll tell you how I fix that. When I'm not invited to something that I want to go to, I just go anyways. It is a 100%, it works 100% of the time. You never get offended. So if there's a party I want to go to, some birthday party, I didn't get invited. Man, you'll be, I'm like, hey, are we invited to that? She goes, I don't think so. And I go, I'm going. I just show up. And if you're confident about it, they just think they invited you. So you'll walk in and they're like, oh, hey. I'm like, hey, thanks for the invite. And I'm there. I'm play, I'm, don't, get, don't be offended because of loneliness. Just don't be lonely. Show up places. Even if you're not invited, don't be like, I wasn't invited. Come on. That's what five-year-olds say. Stand up, show up, have fun, right? That's, the, that's what we do. Okay, so... Yeah, okay. The A stands for agitated. Agitated. Anybody about to have a wedding is like, no, don't do that. I already paid for the meals. Okay, so bored, lonely, agitated. When we get angry or agitated, that's another spot, another area where Satan tries to enter in and say, we don't like this, do something. That's why when you're married, when you get into an argument with your spouse and you start getting agitated, that's why you have this innate response to want to leave, to run from the conversation, to go cool down and go do something. I got to get out of here. I got to go do something to get my mind off of this because I'm angry and agitated. 
That is, are the chemicals in your brain saying run from pain and jump to pleasure. And then when we do that over and over and over again, there are new neural pathways beginning to form in our brain, which is the first step of addiction. So you think I'm going through something. That's why most of us, when we're going through one of these things, has this initial response in a certain something that we jump to. I need to get a drink. I need to go to that place. I need to go to that bar. I need to go hang out with that friend. I need to go do this. I need to go do that. And we have this thing we jump to, good or bad, to relieve our pain. And it's the beginning of addiction. The S is for stress. When I'm stressed, so we have when we're bored, lonely, agitated, stressed, I just feel everywhere I go, family, work, church, it's always stress. And you're constantly, you know, you know that feeling? You're just feeling like, I gotta get out of here. I've gotta go on a vacation. I've gotta do something. And if you can't afford to do something healthy like a vacation, Satan will say, I have another option. Why don't you do X, Y, or Z? And then that is the beginning of unhealthy habits and potentially addiction. And the last one on blast is when we're tired. We're just exhausted. There are so many scientific reasons and tests that have been run on when people are tired, how their brain just begins to shut down and we don't make good decisions. Guys, in the story of the wilderness, Jesus in the wilderness, he's experiencing blast. All of them. And Satan waits until his weakest moment when he knows that his own brain, Jesus's brain is working against him, that's when Satan comes in and he latches onto Jesus and he pushes him spiritually to try to push him over the edge. But this is what's so powerful about the story. If Jesus gave in and took a bite of the bread, it would have canceled the cross. How crazy is that? Because he would have given in to temptation and would no longer have been perfect and could not have died for our sins. What's so powerful in that moment, in that weakness, you are more important than the bread. I think it's really powerful, really powerful. Always remember that Jesus was fully God and fully man. The second way that Satan attacks is he attacks our identity. Satan attacks our identity. This is so important as well. So we see again in um, Matthew 3 was the baptism. Then we go to Matthew 4, the wilderness. And when we think about identity, what happened, the whole point of the baptism really was for God the Father to give Jesus his identity in front of crowds, to establish this is my son, his identity. Then Jesus goes into the wilderness and Satan is there. And on the 40th day, he begins to tempt him. And what does Satan do? He begins to question the identity of Jesus. If you really are what? The son of God, you can't go hungry, turn these stones into bread. If you really are who you say you are, this is what had to be going through Satan's mind. If you really are the son of God, you have complete authority over everything. That that means you must have been there at the foundation of the earth. You are the creator. If you are the son of God, that means you are God. You created all of this. Why are you acting like you are a man under authority when you are the authority, Jesus? The son of God can't go hungry. Do what you need to do. But Jesus understood something, that he was God, but he was putting himself under the authority of his own law by saying in order for there to be a perfect sacrifice, I have to be a human and be perfect and then sacrifice myself on the cross. So what he's saying is, I, I think this is so interesting, how Satan attacks his identity is he says, if you really are the son of God, then you have authority. What, I mean, why, you have freedom, Jesus. Do whatever you want. You're your own man. 
You're your own person. Why are you acting like you're under authority? And Satan does the same thing to us. He'll come to you and go, so you're a Christian, right? I mean, we just sang a song that says we're free indeed. Satan will say, you are free. Oh, so you're a child of God? You really are? That means you're free. That means grace covers you. That means that sin, the grace is there. You are free. And guess what Satan does? He tells us true-ish things. He'll even quote the word of God and then add a slant to it and make it a lie. So he'll say, you're free. Satan will say, to do whatever you want. God says, you're free to be who I've called you to be. And he has whispered into the minds and ears of people all over our culture saying, so you're a Christian, you're free to do whatever. His grace will always cover you. Will his grace always cover us? Sure, yes, his grace is endless, but that's not the point to grace. Grace is something that empowers us toward holiness. It doesn't only just cover our sin, it does. But when you experience true grace, it pushes you toward God. It's not an excuse to sin, but Satan makes it that way. He says, you're your own man. Don't let anybody tell you what to do. You're your own woman. You are your own authority. Don't you know what society is saying? What's trendy right now? Nobody submits to authority. How dare someone tell you what to do? Do what you want if you really are a child of God. That's what Satan does. The first way he attacks our identity. The second way he attacks our identity is he tries to get what we are so hungry for in that moment, that temptation that with the crabs, you know, whatever is in that trap, he tries to get us to take that thing we want and attach it to our identity. He tries to get us to take that thing and make it become us. So it moves from something that I might like or want to something I am. He does it with sexuality in our society today, the enemy. He does it with power, greed, money. Your job now for many people isn't just something you do, it's who you are. Because if you were to lose it, you would completely fall apart. Money isn't something we earn, it's something we are. Because if it went away, our lives would completely fall apart. It has become our lowercase g. Sexuality now is not something we enter into, it's something we are. Society is saying your identity, this is what is huge right now and it's the first time in human history that sexuality has earned the role of taking over the identity compartment in our soul. So people say, you aren't just attracted to someone in a heterosexual way. You are a heterosexual. You are a homosexual. You are transgender. You are that. So sexuality, just like the bread in the story, and Jesus says, I don't live on that alone. Satan is saying, what do you mean you don't live on that alone? You are a starving person, Jesus. You're not just hungry. You are starving. And if Satan can get us to believe what we want is what we are, he wins. So he says, you aren't someone who is attracted to the same sex. You are gay. You're not just someone who feels like you could be the opposite sex in your mind. That's who you are. And so that's why people get so defensive when they are struggling with something like that, because it's not something that they do. And it's not something they enter into. They've allowed it to become who they are. And Jesus says, I don't live on bread alone. I don't live on what I want alone. I don't live on who I'm attracted to alone. I don't live on money alone. I don't live on my job alone. I don't live on power alone. I only live off of every word that comes out of the mouth of God. That is my identity. 
My identity is who God says I am. And these other things are things I can either enter into or not. Now, I'm not trying to remove the power of temptation. I'm not trying to say it's easy. But guys, every single one of us, this is the truth. The spiritual battle we're facing comes down to one thing. All of the spiritual warfare in our lives comes down to a battle over naming rights. That's it. God says, this is who you are. And Satan, through all the power of the world, says, no, this is who you are. Don't let Christians and God tell you who you are. Because if it's different than how you feel, and if it's different than who you want to have sex with, they're judgmental. And they're mean. No. God says, I have naming rights. I have named you. And I love this. Jesus is essentially saying, why would I limit who I am to becoming what I want in the moment? Because if Jesus took the bread, it would satisfy his hunger for how many hours? Two or three? In three or four hours, Jesus would be hungry again. And what Satan says is, if you take this, this is what's going to fully and finally satisfy you. And then you take it, and guess what it does not do? It does not fully and finally satisfy. Because only one thing does. God and who he says you are. It's not just a typical answer that you're gonna hear in church. It's the absolute truth. It's the absolute truth. Who does God say you are? My nine-year-old son, Asher, I showed you the picture um, a few minutes ago. My nine-year-old son is the life of a party. I mean, he's that kid, man. It's like all, like when he spends the night at my parents' house, Mandy and I just go, like, it's like him is, he's equal to all three of the other kids, but he's just, he's amazing. He's funny. He's hilarious. Life of the party. Every family has one, right? So Asher, we noticed a few months ago, he was acting different. He was acting sad and downcast. He wasn't being his normal self. And Mandy and I were concerned. And actually our oldest son, Aiden, came to me and said, dad, I was talking to Asher last night and people are, at school are calling him names and um, he, it's really affecting him. Asher, our nine-year-old, is extremely gifted musically, and, and he loves theater and drama. He's so talented. So you can imagine some of the names that people would call him at school at nine years old. And I, I, I was so bothered by things, and, and I told Mandy that night, I said, I, 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 have, to go to, I have to go to war for him tonight. And um, I didn't sleep. And while he was sleeping, I just drove around and prayed. And I was yelling, praying. I was yelling at Satan. I don't even know if that's theologically correct, but I was. I was like, I hate you. You want him. You have to go through me. You know, I'm like, ah, you know, going crazy, right? I'm just going to war for my son. Because at nine years old, he can't start accepting some of these things that people are saying. And so that early that morning, right before he was waking up, I was just thinking, God, I don't know what to do practically though. God, I got to do something today. It is clear in my spirit as I think I've ever felt God he showed me a picture of something. You know those, those name tags that say, hello, my name is, and you peel them and you write your name. He showed me that and said, your job is to name your son what I've named him. And so I went to the store and I bought, hello, my name is name tags. And when Asher got up, he was getting ready. I pulled him into his room and I said, Asher, here's what I want to tell you. There's only one person that can name you and it's God. He has a plan for you, a, a destiny for you, a purpose for you. And so what I did that morning is I wrote out on there, King David, and I showed Asher who David was. I said, Asher, David was a musical giant killer. 
he was this and he was that and he wrote the book of Psalms and, and he was a warrior and a general and a king, but he was also, a mu- he wrote music and worship songs that we still sing today. And I said, Asher, you're gonna write worship songs. Sorry, that the whole world will sing. And I, and I said, you're a King David, right? And I put it on his chest and he's looking at me like, this is so dumb, dad, what are you doing? And, but over, we would drive to school and I would just, you know, doing the whole like pastor dad thing out. I'm like, you're going to make it. You're awesome. And we would take it off. And he was so paranoid that one day he would leave one of these names on. Cause I would do like champion and this and handsome and talented and call, you know, call him these different things. One day I wrote champion and this is a side note, but he was so terrified that he was going to accidentally forget to take it off before he went to school. They'd make fun of him more. So he goes into his class and he forgets to take it off that day. And the teacher's like, Asher, what does champion mean on your chest? He goes, oh my gosh, this is so embarrassing. He, took out, he goes, dad, my teacher saw that I said champion, but she also thought it was really cool when I told her what it was. A couple of weeks later, his, his, his whole demeanor started changing. Confidence. And when people call him names, he knows something now. That's not who I am because I know who I am. So here's what I want to tell you. There's a war over your name. God has named you something. Not your actual like name people call you, but there's a deeper name, a purpose name that he's called you. Who are you? Why did God, in all of time and space, take the time to think of you, design you intricately, to place you in this world as such a time as this? You are not an accident, no human being is. Why would God take the time to dream you up, think you up, design you, weave you together for right now? It's not so you can be named by whoever the world wants you to be. It's because your your creator gave you a purpose and our job is to hear his voice and say, I know in the depths of my soul who you've called me to be. And I will be that and I will be that only. If you guys would stand with me today. It's so important for us to remember this. So important. I'm going to ask everybody to bow their heads and close their eyes. and I'm going to ask if there's anybody in the room that you came in today and maybe you've been somebody that was has been running from God. Maybe you're sitting here. I don't. You don't even know exactly why you're here today, but through a series of events, you're just here. And you're hearing this. I just want to encourage you. That wasn't an accident. And the Holy Spirit took you here. He drew you here, and you are here for a very specific reason, okay? Also, there are people here that you might have called yourself a Christian in the past. You may have said a prayer one time, but you never truly surrendered your life to God. Maybe you're here today, and and you know that the purpose that, that you don't feel in your life might actually be because you have been calling yourself something that you're not, that you never actually gave your life to Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. If that's you... Without any delay, just on the count of three, I'm going to ask you wherever you are just to raise your hand and I want to pray over you. And then I'm going to turn this over to Pastor Ty and we have some people that would love to encourage you and pray with you in a moment. But if that's you, just raise your hand right where you are. One, two, three. Thank you guys. Thank you. Thank you. Wow. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. A lot of hands. Yeah, give them a huge round of applause. We're going to sing this song. And during this song, you're going to come up, right, Pastor? Okay, during this song, they're going to come up and encourage you. But guys, go home to your families. Encourage people. Name your spouse and your children what God says, right? Encourage your families. Father, we thank you so much for today. For the people who have raised their hands, we give their lives. They give their lives to you right now, Jesus. You died on a cross for our sins. You took our place. We surrender our lives to you 
right now. Thank you. We love you. Let grace wash over us right now. In Jesus' name we pray. 